This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I am your co-host, Rob Hadley people and culture strategist specializing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and people analytics. I'm here with my friend, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, welcome to another week. How are you doing? Well, I was just going to say welcome to you, too. I'm doing well, Rob. How are you this week? <laughs> I am wonderful. And yeah. as you know, it's, you know, it's kind of end of the year. I, I did a question for you. Uh, as yeah. you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a consultant, right? Yeah. You got clients. Do some of this work. Sure. What do, what do you do? Do you do like corporate gifts end of the year? You know, do you, that do is... you give out gifts? Wait, maybe, did I tell Maybe you? I'm putting you on the spot. No, no. No, tell no, me. no. Tell me. What do you this do? is just so interesting that you brought this up. I don't think I shared this with you. Um, I, I don't give gifts. I send holiday cards. I think that that's like just as a nice gesture from, from a consultant to like clients or, you know, business partners that you worked with. But what I thought was really kind, Rob, was I received an email from a client who said, we really want to celebrate and honor um, some, some I'm, I'm totally like paraphrasing here, but sure. I want us, we want to, as the organization, we want to celebrate and honor the holidays in your honor. And so we, um, we have picked and narrowed down like to three different nonprofit organizations in our local area that we would love for you to pick and we mm -hmm. will contribute in your honor. I like and it. I thought that was this, I literally got so teary eyed. Yeah. It was just a really sweet gesture uh -huh. um, for that organization to, to donate in my name to a local organization of their choosing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they that. even offered from if there was an organization that I was aligned to that they would prefer me to, to donate to. Just thought it was really sweet. Nice. Nice. I did that at my wedding, actually, many years ago. You did? I don't think people liked it, though. I think they wanted, like, some sort of tote bag or something. Yeah, they, they wanted a favor. <laughs> there, yeah. yeah. I flew all the way Where's out here my candle? you were going to give the money to someone else. Yeah, right. Um, Do you give gifts like corporate Well, I'm, I'm going to. It's just, you know, you're, you get super busy, right? Like, everyone wants you to do stuff work at the end of the year and so i think it's gonna be more like a new year's thing but yeah. so i think you're supposed to as a as a consultant you're supposed to give it earlier in the cycle it should be like showing oh. up early december i think i'm a little bit behind but well I, yeah there's okay. a lot so that happens yeah so you're not gonna get yours for a while so, yeah, so that's fair you probably aren't gonna get one so <laughs> <laughs> hey. 
Happy holidays. On that note. On that note. What are we doing today, Nadia? Yeah. So this week on Inclusive Collective, we will be talking to Frederick Irwin, president of the National Women's History Museum. We'll discuss a new technology that aims to eliminate mass shootings and a very important Supreme Court case on uh, discrimination. We'll also be ranting and raving this week. You'll rant on medical schools and I'll be raving on workplace religious inclusion. Yeah, what's uh, what's what's first on our itinerary here? Yeah, so uh, this was a really interesting story. Yahoo News shared an article about, about a software company, Wave Welcome. Um, it's a Maryland startup that's using um, AI and drones to essentially tackle America's gun violence epidemic. It's it's really cool because you know this particular product would alert police to an armed intruder and deliver a live stream before any bystander calls nine one one. So. Um, the founder, Bernard Wright, he's the founder of Way Welcome. He's one of the few Black founders in the AI space and is someone addressing the issue of gun violence, particularly like in his community in Maryland, where gun violence is prevalent. But but um, more particularly, there was something that happened last year that really kind of drew him to this. And of course, we all know gun violence disproportionately impacts minority um, communities. And I thought this this was really important to bring up just, you know, this this person is a black founder, you know, advocating for more representation in tech uh, as well as, um, you know, in the startup community. So I'll pause there for for comments. Well, I hate this, Nadia. I mm. <laughs> you hate that we have to even do this. I, right? you're, you know where I'm going, right? Like, I so do. Well, first of all, this. I, let's just say I don't love it, right? So it feels very minority report to me, first mm. of all, right? Like, like someone uh, is detected of, of having something, the police are alerted and drones are following us around, things like that. Do you like that? Do you know the movie I'm talking about? No. Minority Report? Okay. It's like Tom Cruise movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I don't remember saying yeah, yeah. 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 So, you know, I think that it's a good thing that, and I think that there's an opportunity that if, there, if there's a black man developing this technology, has a better chance of thinking through some of the bias that mm -hmm. could be in the algorithm and maybe yeah. mitigating some of the damage. Uh, but if if he can do it and someone else can, right? And so you think about some of the more nefarious versions of this, right? So yeah. black teens in hoodies go into uh, a store and there's an alert and things are following them around. Or, yeah. you know, you're a Muslim. Think about all the ways that this could be used to wash folks uh, based on various stereotypes as well. So, sure. so I, you, you know what I think, right? So yeah. I appreciate him locating the business in a predominantly black area. But this is really a failure of policy, right? Like, so no one's building this business in Finland or Japan, places that they have every bit of the technological capabilities that we have, mm -hmm. but they don't have to because they have strong and enforced gun laws, right? Yeah. And so seems like a great buck guy, but we could eliminate the need for this idea yeah. tomorrow, right? Yeah. With policy. With so, policy. Yeah. You're so, you're spot so, on. Sorry. But, no, I, but I, great, great. Seems like a great guy. Yeah, seems like a great guy. No, and you're spot on. And thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and, you know, I shared this article, one, because I, I really was drawn to like the lack of funding capital black founders yep. receive and how underrepresented um, in business and in tech they are. And so uh, absolutely, your your point is well taken. Um, and we can still do better kind of in that startup founder v for VC sure. space, right? We should have him on. He seems like a really yeah. interesting and, and uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, yeah, I'll, entrepreneur, re I'll so. reach out to him. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Supreme Court. You know, I like to put on my, my lawyer hat. I like to oh, do a little yeah. lawyering. 
I was waiting for that. I've been waiting for that. This past week, oral arguments were made in front of the Supreme Court, Mm. right? You know, Supreme Court. Uh, In the case of Muldrow versus the city of St. Louis, the petitioner, uh, Jatanya Muldrow of the St. Louis Police Department, argued that her eight-month transfer out of the department's intelligence division constituted discrimination uh, within the meaning of Title VII, even though she had not suffered any economic damages as a result of her transfer. So Mm. a reminder, Title VII, you know, Rob doing his lawyer thing, protects people from discrimination on the basis of race, gender, disability, things we call protected categories. In some jurisdictions, Nadia, Mm -hmm. you have to prove that your employer's action constituted a significant disadvantage. Right. So why in some places is there one rule, in some places another? Because nothing makes sense. It's stupid. There's no, but (laughs) in the Muldrow case, the officer had certain privileges and access and prestige taken Mm. away, but was not fired. So let me pause. Should people be allowed to claim discrimination if they've not been fired, but have just been treated worse? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's such a great question because like when I was reading this, I was like, oh my gosh, job transfers, right? Like what about demotions? Like just because you are not eliminated from your job, like, yeah, of course there's discrimination. There's a discrimination in the process. So the answer is yes. Yeah. I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. But we have a twist, right? Yes, always. So, and, and apparently conservative justices, including my old drinking buddy, Brett Kavanaugh, <laughs> very, very open to this um, because according to our friends at Jackson Lewis, they believe that it'll open the door to expanded claims against DEI programs, like right. mentorship uh, programs to correct underrepresentation, et cetera. So if you can prove that you were harmed by a transfer or demotion into a, you know, some sort of a lower job, then I can prove that... I was harmed because I'm not eligible for your mentorship program. And if you don't think this will happen, you just haven't been listening to the Inclusive Collective podcast yeah. for the last few months. So, right. so now, so, so now tell me, what, what do you think about this? No, I, I mean, yes, it, th- but this goes back to, so this really goes back to what is your intention and purpose around things like ERG groups or affinity groups, like any sort of DE. This is why I hate separating DE&I as like a separate entity in a business because mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be separate. It just has to be the way you do work and the way you behave and the way you treat each other and treat people. Because the, now the problem is, is if you don't have clear intentions or a clear purpose, then, you know, there's so much there's so many legal ramifications or suits or claims that people will pose. And what this goes back to is really trying to think through intentionally what is it that you're. Like, don't create something because it's just trendy, because mm. an ERG is a trendy thing to do. You have to really think through what is the problem that you're trying to solve for? What's the data telling you that this solution is the best one? Um, and really just making sure you're checking in with your legal team. You got to have a good lawyer. <laughs> lawyer up. Lawyer up. I should have gone to law school, right? I so know. The, the there's going to be a need, a lot of need for lawyers going forward. So we'll see how this turns out. I mean, obviously, I think they, what do they do? I think they, they, they hear oral arguments, then they go sit by the pool and read them again. And then, okay. uh, they, then they make a decision sometime in June or, or, or later this the year. The pool so, or the slopes? Well, it was, yeah, it could be this pool. It could be the slopes, right? Like whatever, you know, a bunch of people, but yeah, yeah whatever. whatever. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. Uh, thanks to that, Nadia. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be with Frederick Irwin, 
of the National Women's History Museum. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is Frederick Irwin. She's the president and CEO of the National Women's History Museum. Fred has more than 25 years of experience in strategic management, nonprofit, and commercial business operations, impact, and entrepreneurship. She previously served as managing director of impact strategy at the Sorensen Impact Center, where she managed high-level partnerships with leading organizations in the social impact sector and led initiatives around improving equity in higher education and driving systems-level change for equity in women in entrepreneurship. She also was the founder of, and CEO of Her Corner, a company educating women on how to scale their businesses. She expanded Her Corner across multiple cities in the U.S. and was a frequent speaker on the state of entrepreneurship for women in the U.S. and helped thousands of women-owned businesses scale. Her work supporting women earned her a spot as a New Zealand Edmund Hillary Fellow, a global fellowship for impact leaders. She has taught business management, entrepreneurship, and organizational behavior at the Kogod School of Business at American University. Frederick holds an MBA from the Graduate School of Business, College of William Mary, and a Bachelor of Arts in Russian Studies from Davidson College. She's a dual citizen of the United States and the European Union. She's fluent in English, French, Spanish, and conversant in Russian. Oh, copy la. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frederick Irwin, so great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Inclusive Collective. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. And I think I'm going to have to shorten up that intro. <laughs> well, it is quite impressive. And thank you so much for, for joining us uh, this week. I'll go ahead with the, the first kind of question. So your career in social work has been super inspiring, um, really focused on social injustices and challenges across um, the, the, you know, the states as well as global. And now you serve as the president of the National Women's History Museum. Um, so tell us more about like what drew you to this role, um, you know, in in this, you know, the, this particular museum at this time in, in, in your life and in history. I have been president and CEO of the National Women's History Museum now for a little over seven months. And I came to this role um, in the slightly circuitous route because I don't come from the museum historian type of background. In fact, I've recently learned that I'm what's referred to as museum adjacent. And part of this trend, if you will, of bringing folks from the for-profit or entrepreneurial space into some of these social impact organizations. And part of what drew me specifically to this museum was the fact that uh, it's been around for 27 years. And one of its most significant accomplishments was that in 2020, 21, got Congress to appropriate and agree to fund a future American Women's History Museum as part of the Smithsonian, which is great, except it's a long process. It can mm. take 10 years on the short end, 12, 15 on the, on the perhaps longer end. Mm. And for me personally, I was drawn to this role because I realized, you know, women are half the population and we need women more than ever, to be part of the solution, to feel a sense of efficacy and confidence in their ability to, to jump in and, and help solve whatever social issue we're facing today. And there are many. There are many. And that, that's, uh, you know, you jumped into it. So it's obviously a very critical time as well. And so uh, 
and and you're taking over at this very interesting time for women. And when you think about the last couple of years, we've seen rollbacks in uh, women's rights, access to care. We also see a lot of firsts here. Right? So every week we're uh, we're talking about something, some sort of a new first for, uh, for in terms of progress for for women. And so, you know, so I I didn't know if I want to jump in this early, but where do you see the state of play for women uh, here at the end of 2023? What, what what do you have your eye on? I mean, I, I, I don't know what first you're seeing, but I, I don't see very many of them. Well, <laughs> maybe I'm looking at the broader picture. You know, when I'm yeah. looking at the broader picture, I'm looking at the fact that we still have less than 30 percent female representation in um, Congress, in the Senate, um, less than 10 percent of women CEOs nationally. It's less than 30 percent women on boards. Um, then you start looking at women in STEM and some of the, you know, AI field. So. I'm not saying that there's not progress that's continuing to be made, but I am I am a little disheartened about the state of affairs for women in general, not just in this country right now, but also mm. globally. And I think that um, the fundamental reason it's so important that the National Women's History Museum get information about women's history and women's accomplishments out to people out there today is that if you've never heard or seen or even um, known that some of these women have achieved all this stuff already or worked so hard on, you know, then you're less likely to imagine yourself able to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And it's we know for a fact that if you look at what's taught in this country across social studies classes, less than 15 percent is about women's history. And Mm -hmm. by the way, of that 15 percent, half is in a domestic capacity, like, oh, Martha was married to George, you know? So, right. right. Yep. So, I, I yeah. know, such a sigh, right? Like, uh, I know. <laughs> and Rob, I think, you know, what you hit on it, right? I mean, my daughter has fewer rights today than I did at her age, right? I mean, right. that's a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal. So, anyways. Well, I'm curious, like, when you, when you started, I'm I don't want to make an assumption, but like, do you feel that maybe you didn't know everything about women's history? And I'm just so curious, like, what have you learned to date since you started that's like new for you that maybe surprised you? Is there something that um, over the course of the last you know few months that, that you've been a part of the organization that has been brought to your attention that you didn't know previously? And that really is just such a really cool piece of information to know. I mean, honestly, Nani, I there's so much I didn't know that I yeah. still don't know. <laughs> um, yep, sure. And and every single day, I feel like I'm learning more and more stories about women. I'm, you know, so for example, right before we hopped on, I was looking at an online exhibit we're launching on Monday on Title IX mm-hmm. and the history of Title IX, and you know, the women that were really genuinely involved, like Patsy Mink, um, in terms of of changing these these laws. Um, but last month, for example, I was in Chicago where we work with the U.S. Mint to um, launch quarters that have mm-hmm. women on them. And so the quarter that was released last month was Maria Tallchief. And she was not only the first American prima donna, uh, prima donna, prima ballerina, uh, she was also the first Native American prima ballerina in this country. And so I feel like I'm learning about these women like all the time. And re- and like the question is always, you know, how come I didn't know about this? How come I didn't know about right. her? And that's the, that's really the, the state of affair. I will never learn everything there is because I've spent 
the first 50 years of my life having half of that information not really in- integrated into my studies to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, you know, just 10, 15 minutes on your website and I learned, you know, 10, 15 things, right? <laughs> like you just, yeah. That yeah. I'd never seen before. And so, and, you know, and really so much about being a modern museum is about how do you engage through technology, especially engaging young people, students, you know, so what, what are your, you know, what are you doing in this area? What are the, your priorities and um, what does the museum of the future need to think about really around technology? Oh my gosh, we are all in on technology. You know, one of the things when I first came um, to the museum and I started thinking about strategic planning, I realized that one of the things we really had going for us was the fact that we started in 1997 as an online museum mm-hmm. because we were trying to get a brick and mortar location, but we started at it by just putting everything online. And we now have nearly 30 years of digital content in a time where there's artificial intelligence scraping the internet. So it, we're not trying to digitize everything. But the biggest change that we are um, implementing is rethinking our direct-to-consumer channels. And so we focus really on two primary audiences. One are the K-12 through educators, the teachers out there, Mm -hmm. 87% of whom say that they have to go outside the classroom to look for content to teach on women's history. And so we, we see them as our primary demographic. But the other demographic, is folks between the ages of five to 30. And specifically because we think that in the long run, if we can, if we can teach them about women's history and women's accomplishments and how it relates to what's going on today, that demographic can have the largest impact in terms of shrinking the gender equality gap in this country. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is that five to 30 is a broad range. Yeah, and if right. you, so we've had to really break down the you know, the five to 10 year olds and the 10 to 14 and then 14 to 18 and then 18 and beyond and really think about how they consume information. And so we are developing, along with a series of of, a variety of different partners, repurpose content, whether that's with influencers, whether that's with gaming solutions, Mm -hmm. whether that's with shorts on YouTubes, because teachers are using those for their kindergarten groups, you know. Mm -hmm. So we are... um, we are really um, in the process of developing a new end-to-end tech solution and strategy so that we can not only continue to create content, but co-create with others and aggregate what is already out there to make sure that people know it's true. I love that. Such a great mix of like different generations and, and understanding what their learning modes or needs are. I'm curious, how, how else does the museum think about different dimensions of diversity in women's history. So if you think about, you know, the various dimensions, race, um, age, uh, class, all of kind of the different, I mean, I know you can't hit upon all of them, but just the various dimensions. Is there um, priorities that you have set for 2024, just in terms of how you would, how you folks would think about that? You know, that's um, specifically a question for our education team. So I'm not sure how, you know, which specific target work there, which bodies of work they're targeting in 2024. But I can tell you that the exhibit that we recently opened um, in D.C., so part of what we are doing is while we're not going to open up a physical building ourselves, that's going to be for the future Smithsonian, we are launching these small exhibits and putting them across the country in places that we believe to be highly accessible. 
And so we tested this out at the MLK Library here in Washington, D.C. And we specifically said, you know, who are the women who were local to Washington who made such an impact in this city, but at a national level? And so we actually decided to do an entire exhibit called We Who Believe in Freedom, Black Feminist D.C. And it's about 18 to 20 African-American women whom you and I probably, for the most part, never heard of because they weren't in our textbooks. And what they did for civil liberty, for reproductive rights, for just justice in general, for all, not just for women, for but for LBTQ and like so many other folks, it's really Black feminism elevates so many rights for so many people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been a really powerful exhibit to have, you know, downtown Washington, D.C. And we've in got a really beautiful library, too. I a, love the MLK yeah. library. Yeah. And it's highly accessible. Right. So lots of kids, lots of people walking by and being like, hey, what's this? You know, so anyways. I, I want to talk about also your or hit on your expertise in terms of uh, helping women build and scale businesses, and you know, and, and also hit on some of the frustration that you you talked about earlier in terms of women's entrepreneurship or investment in in uh, in women run businesses. And so, yeah, I don't know if you uh, still drawing from that expertise as well, but how, how do you think about drawing from what you did there? and how it impacts your current role. Is there any kind of overlap? Yeah, on two levels. The first is that um, I think that coming from an entrepreneurial background is quite helpful when you're mm -hmm. trying to launch and grow and rebuild a complete national strategy. Um, and I'm not afraid of trying something and repivoting if it doesn't work. So I think that that, that helps enormously, that background. Um, the other thing is, you know, I have been all in on women's empowerment probably since high school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's been definitely the common thread across my entire trajectory career wise. What's interesting is that when I first started my my company, Her Corner, it was really a point to point solution where I would build groups and we would offer individual coaching and we were trying to hit women kind of as many as we could. But there was a limit to how many we could help. So then I went to Sorensen and I was like, let me think about this from a systems level perspective. What mm -hmm. if we start integrating policy and large donors and thought, you know, think tanks? And what if we put all of that together? Can we change some of the barriers women in marginalized communities are facing um, in equity in a variety of different ways? And then what I realized there was, oh, my gosh, that just takes so freaking long. So <laughs> part of the reason that I came here is I thought, okay, I need a, I, if I really want to change the game in terms of gender equality, I need to do it in a different way. And so here I'm, I'm using kind of the, the women's history and our, our, in, you know, our channeling into technology as a way, hopefully, to get to even more women to really, hopefully, compel them to act not only for themselves or for others, but also for the world. So I love that. So that is so inspiring and, and fantastic. And I think our listeners will definitely take away, um, you know, some of what you said. And, and what I'm really curious about to hear from you is like, what if you were to give a recommendation to our listeners, of a resource um, other than going to the museum and checking it out, 
Um, is there anything that you could provide to us in terms in terms of a resource um, to help us think a little bit more about women's history? Well, yes, womenshistory.org should be their first step. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that the resources are evolving. So in, in my number one piece of advice is check your sources, because mm. my kids, for example, I have a high schooler who, when she's doing a paper on a certain person these days, she's not Googling it. She's not necessarily going to my website. She's going to an app, an app that generally has artificial intelligence integration and having a direct conversation with a historical person about mm. their life. So they they want it faster, right? They want to say like, hey, Susan B. Anthony, like, when were you born? What did you do? When did you get arrested? Like, did you have any kids? Did you get married? Right? They right. want to have like that level of interaction and not be reading the bios, not be reading the. And so I've been checking a lot of these apps. And the truth is that some of them are good. Most of them are not fully representative or inclusive, not always accurate. Right. So. I think that that's my biggest piece of advice is that in this day and age, checking sources is really, really important. Yeah. Do you think about partnerships with you in terms of your organization with folks in order to create less biased uh, applications like that? 100% Rob. Like that's the probably the biggest element of our strategy, our growth strategy, is that while we'll continue to, to you know, create our own content, our biggest objective is to co-create with others as well as aggregate. And so I want to co-create with organizations that are out there that are telling, you know, stories and historical documentation that perhaps we haven't gotten to yet um, mm -hmm. and co-create it with them and then put it through our channels. I want to then go around and create a process to actually say, like, this app is highly a trusted source or accurate or whatever. Because I, I want to go as broadly as we can to push as much as much information about women and their accomplishments and their history forward as possible. I don't want to be just one one lane here. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, I, I I can't think of a better person to do it. You and I know each other from before your time there at uh, the National Women's History Museum. But uh, when when you told me that this is the role that you we're going to take, I, I thought immediately, wow, they, they couldn't have chosen a better person uh, to lead, you know, at this time for women. And so, you know, very, very excited to see what you come up with next and where you can take the organization and the museum. And, and, and thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me and for your interest and curiosity on, you know, what we're doing in museums of the future and all that sort of stuff. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back with more Inclusive Collective right after this. Welcome back, folks. We just finished chatting with Frederic Irwin of the National Women's History Museum. Really great conversation. Rob, what were your thoughts? Any takeaways? No, I'm so stuck on, you know, like I wasn't I wasn't joking that when I went to their website and just glancing around doing research mm -hmm. on Fred and her focus in terms of building out that museum that there's just so much that you you're you know you think mm -hmm. about who gets to decide who presents history and for you know most of our uh, history here in the United States that had not been 
and certainly not uh, women of color as well. And so there's just so much that I learned uh, and, and spent a little bit of time there. And you feel like you really need to, uh, to dive in a little bit more. So you feel inadequate in terms of your understanding of the history of this country when you, yeah. when you spend a little bit of time on that website. How about you? Yeah, just, I think like her um, reminding us of trusted sources is mm. so critical, uh, especially in this moment in time. But I, I appreciate her reminder of that and just like their focus of their partners that they're, you know, working with on who could be a trusted source and so forth. So, um, yeah, just an overall really great conversation. Love the work that they're doing there. Really wish them well. And I can't wait to go check it out in person. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. VIP, VIP tour. <laughs> VIP. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for Frederick Irwin. All right. Well, it's time for rants and raves. I'm going to go ahead and kick us off. Sure. I'm going to rant. Uh, you might remember that the, what I call the not at all partisan and totally legitimate Supreme Court, uh, that they banned affirmative action in higher education. We may have mentioned this or talked about it once or twice on this, on this program, right? So. <laughs> But uh, before that, the uh, high court's June ruling, a handful of states had already banned race-conscious admissions in medical school, right? And uh, uh, reported in Bloomberg, their elimination of affirmative action resulted in a 37% decline underrepresented students in medical school relative to the states that still allowed it. And when my spouse, who is a physician and knows a thing or two about this, uh, when I when I sent that uh, article from Bloomberg to her, uh, she reminded me that that was the goal. That's exactly what, what was intended. So mm. It is working, and uh, so we're you know a little bit sad and frustrated by that. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's uh, let's do let's end on a happy note. So um, this is just a I read an article that leaders of companies are open to the idea of creating faith based employee resource groups, like providing those who are part of um, some form of like religious denomination of Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, et cetera. So like this comes out of um, kind of the rise that we see right now in anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim and anti-Arab discrimination, hate crimes and bias, of course, across um, the, the states. And so a good way to provide a safe space to employees and show allyship is creating something like an ERG. But what I will just say kind of um, wrapping up what we had talked about earlier or tapping upon what we talked about earlier is just be sure you're clear with your purpose and intentions when when creating them. But yeah, just saw that. Um, think leaders are maybe starting to listen and lean into um, the the faith-based uh, needs of organizations. Very for, cool. Or, of employees. Very cool. Very cool. And something that uh, a few years ago you couldn't get done. And nope. now people are starting to realize that these are important conversations to have in organizations. So thank you for that. Uh, and just before we uh, head out, I do want to plug. So we had Fred on earlier. And so one of the things we didn't talk about was that National History Women's Museum, uh, womenshistory.org. There is a really cool, I don't know if you checked it out, but there's a really cool shop online with really cool uh, women's history apparel gifts and things like that so definitely check that out uh i think you know if you're looking for is that a where you unique, get all your corporate gifts a about? unique corporate or holiday gift i think is a good yeah. idea so awesome well that's it for inclusive collective just a reminder to folks that if you're looking for dei and workplace culture strategy consulting problem solving or training you can reach me at nadia at nasconsultants.com and rob at kakanoconsulting.com 
Inclusive Collective is a production of Rebellion Media. Um, we would love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at rebellion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Please be sure to follow us on LinkedIn so you can subscribe to our Inclusive Collective newsletter. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us. We like five stars um, wherever you get your podcast today. Thanks again to our guest, Frederic Irwin. We'll be back next week. Be well.